Chapter 5 of Forgotten Gold. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shreya Sethi. Forgotten Gold by Julian Stafford Corbett. Chapter 5 It was after haul one day, in the middle of July, that Mr. Cartwright came up to me with the great news. Our time has come at last, Jasper, said he. This day the Vice-Chancellor has received a letter from Mr. Secretary with very sharp orders for the burying of our differences, seeing that the Queen's Grace will make progress here early in August. That is news indeed, said I. Will there not be great things done for her entertainment? That is the way my content lies, answered Mr. Cartwright, radiant. There will be disputations, great disputations, where we shall pour into her gracious ear the true wisdom of reformation and refute our backsliding, halting adversaries. But it is always said, I replied, that the queen clings to her ceremonies and superstitions. So she does, he said. And were it not that that goodly man... Lord Robert Dudley is ever at her side, things might go harder with the faithful than they do. Truly, said I, our high steward is very earnest for the truth, but how shall we prevail with her better than he? God will give us strength and words and wisdom, he answered excitedly. I shall stand forth in his might at the great disputation and speak words of fire that the Lord shall whisper in my ears. She shall listen and know it is the word of God that she hears, and lo, she shall go forth from Cambridge henceforth thrice blessed, to search out and destroy utterly throughout the length and breadth of the land all that the people have disobediently saved from the destruction of Amalek. But will she surely hearken, I said, half pitying and half fearing, to see him lifting up his voice like one of the prophets? I, lad, he cried, growing more and more excited. I know she will. She is young and good and wise. She has been surrounded by evil counsellors, but the Lord has bidden me go cry to her that she may see the way of England's, I, and the world's salvation. It was not until the day after the Queen arrived, when she rode out of her lodgings at King's to visit the colleges, that my eyes were gladdened with the sight of that most sublime princess. I took my stand in Trinity, near the door of the hall, to see her ride into it. I shall never forget that sight as she passed on erect upon her horse, in a black velvet gown and hat. It was before the present monstrous fashions had come into use, and her costume so set off the brilliancy of her complexion and the ruddy glow of her hair, that she looked radiant as a goddess in the joy of her reception and the full flush and beauty of youthful womanhood. As she rode on into the hall, I fell upon my knees to worship what seemed to me, who had never spoken to and hardly seen a beautiful woman before, the most lovely sight my eyes had ever beheld. With all my lungs, I shouted, Vivat Regina Divina! She heard my cry and smiled down upon me, and I, poor soul, 
like I know not how many more beside me that day, rose up over my ears in love with my queen. And why should I not? Could a gentleman have a more worthy love? Some speak of her littleness and mumble over her womanly faults. I, for one, will not listen to them. I did not see them. I worshipped what I saw, what that was all men know. What witness could I call in her defence were she arraigned before a court of perfect womanhood? And those not her own subjects either, it is only natural that they should praise. But foreigners, as any may know who have heard, as I have, Signor Giordano Bruno, the wisest of all who in my time have travelled hither, and my good friend, exhaust his surpassing eloquence in praising her. I hold her, so I have heard him say, for a princess without peer or rival, a woman so gifted and favoured of heaven, that, whether for heroism or learning or sagacity, no soldier or lawyer or statesman in her kingdom is her equal. I tell you that the wisdom, the dignity, the statesmanship, the wit, the beauty of that most royal lady has won her a throne upon the steps of which must humbly take their place. Semiramis, Dido, Cleopatra, and all princesses of whom the world has boasted hitherto. See where she sits upon her lofted seat, with the eyes of Christendom fixed upon her in astonishment and admiration, wondering to see how, in her beauty and dignity, as by the mere force that shines from her glorious face she kept back from her beloved kingdom for well-nigh thirty years the storm that surged and roared upon the face of Europe, and when at last it burst in frantic fury on your shoes, hurled it back with one majestic sweep of her arm, and bounded down once more to receive what it was her will to send. Happy, happy for the world if thou, my peerless queen, like the new sun goddess Aphrodite that thou art, shouldst open thy girdle, till it embraced not only England and Ireland, but the whole globe. Then, under thy benignant, universal rule, it should deserve the title thou hast won for thine own realm amongst the wisest of other lands. Then should it be named, as they have named England, the pattern of perfect monarchy, domicilium quietatis et humanitatis. Such, at any rate, was Cambridge while the sun stayed with us, and such indeed was England by the side of other realms. So completely did the fair flowers of scholarship, which blossomed in the sunbeams of her presence, obscure the thorns beneath, that Cambridge indeed appeared the garden of learning that she thought it. It was a sight I am proud to have seen when she sat in great St. Mary's Church beneath her canopy, with the doctors and bachelors in due order around her, upon the great stage that had been erected there for the disputations. Surely it is a second Sheba, whispered Mr. Cartwright to me, as I stood by his side with the books he required for setting forth his arguments. She has come from the south to hear the wisdom of heaven. Pray God he may give me this day some shred of the spirit of Solomon. Would God, sir, said I, you might turn her heart, though I fear the ungodly have sorely hardened it. 
Why do you say that? asked he. Did she not last night, I answered, listen to a play of Plautus in King's Chapel after evening prayer? And did they not use the rude loft as a gallery for her women? Better use it for that, said Mr. Cartwright, than for the lewd mockery of God they hold there daily. What wonder the poor queen is led astray in that pestilent slough of papacy where she lodges. But peace now, for the proctor calls on the respondent to begin the act. Mr. Thomas Bing of Peter House set forth the questions of the Philosophy Act. They were two, namely, monarchy is the best form of government, and secondly, the constant changing of the laws is dangerous. When his oration was finished, the masters who were called to the disputation came forward. Mr. Cartwright's opponent in this was Mr. Thomas Preston of King's, a man of very goodly presence and sufficient wit, though more fit for a courtier than a scholar, and at heart little better reformation man than the rest of the king's fellows. He made a speech well wrought enough and delivered with courtly gesture and very trippingly to the great pleasure of the queen. Yet for fire, learning, persuasion, and all that pertains to true rhetoric and philosophy, it was, to my mind, but the chatter of a jay beside my Mr. Cartwright's speaking. I could see the Queen was well pleased with what he said. It was like being in paradise with the angels for me, to watch her beautiful face, wherein was delicately mirrored all the subtle perceiving qualities of her most polished mind, as each was stirred by the magic of my master's tongue. As I look back to it now, it seems to me like the shining surface of some tropic lake, wherein the great soul of God, that dwells in the trees and flowers and vines, is mirrored each moment more gloriously, as the soft breath of heaven from time to time breaks up the reflected image. I dwell on this because some have said, most wantonly, that Mr. Cartwright was so vexed at the favour the Queen afterwards showed to Mr. Preston that he thenceforward became a bitter enemy of the church she loved. I say it is a wanton lie to speak so. My master was too great a soul to harbour such littleness. His hatred of prelacy and superstitious forms was of older and firmer standing than that. If at that time he changed at all in opinion, it was that he saw too well there was no hope of winning the Queen, and that it was to Parliament and the people he must henceforth look. He was very silent as we left the church, and in spite of all I could say concerning the Queen's plain pleasure in his speech, I could see the melancholy of his face grow deeper and its resolution sterner. I know that he saw at once that he had failed, and perceived clearly before him the long life of toil and pain and bitterness through which he was thenceforth to fight his way. I was very glad that evening as we sat together gloomily in our lodging to hear a knocking at the door. I went to open it and found there a gentleman of the court, tall of stature but so wrapped in his cloak and shaded by a large Spanish hat that I could not tell who it was. Is Mr. Cartwright within? said the gentleman. Would you have speech with him? asked I. 
Yes, and alone, answered the gentleman. I knew not what to do, but Mr. Cartwright, who had started up at the sound of the stranger's voice, cried out at once to me that I should go. I went out straightway to King's College to see the seniors and court ladies go into the play of Tito, which was being presented there that night, wherein Mr. Thomas Preston was playing a chief part. In an hour's time, I returned, but hearing voices still within my lodging, waited outside, where a lamp swung over the door. Very soon, the voices ceased, and the gentleman came out. He seemed so occupied with his recent talk with Mr. Cartwright that he took no pains to conceal his face, and as he passed out by the lamp, I could see that it was none other than Lord Robert Dudley. What said Lord Robert about it? I asked when I went in, thinking he had certainly come from the Queen to speak with my master about his oration. How knew you it was Lord Robert? said he quickly. I saw his face by the lamplight, said I, surprised at his sharpness. Then tell no man what you saw, he answered. He was silent a moment, and then, as though he thought best to tell me more, since I knew so much, or perhaps for the very longing to speak with someone, he went on. He came not to speak of the oration, said he, but of deeper matters, of things which nearly concern our reformation. God grant he be a true man. But is he not surely a true friend of ours? I asked. I know not, lad. I know not, he said. He speaks fair enough, but I doubt there is too much wind under his cap for us to count too much on his steadfastness. Still better a popinjay at court than no friend at all. Things look black indeed if all he says be true. God knows what counsel is being breathed into the Queen's ears, but tis certain her right hand is held out to Spain since peace was made with France. I thought there would be leisure for England to complete the good work within herself, but now this dallying with Spain and the woman of Scotland, of which I hear may mar all, and we perhaps shall have to fight the fight again. Heaven send these piracies of which Mr. Drake writes to us, and of which Lord Robert speaks, may by God's help prosper, till they make a breach between his people and the spawn of Antichrist such as no queen or king or embassy can heal. It surprised me to hear so godly a man as Mr. Cartwright speak of heaven prospering piracy, but I was wont to believe all he said was right and held my peace. He went on then to tell me how earnest Her Majesty was that Lord Robert should marry the Queen of Scots and how well she had received the new Spanish ambassador at Richmond and many other evil signs. But surely, sir, said I, in this she deserves the praise of our party, seeing that if the Queen of Scots had so godly a husband as our high steward, all practices against the cause in Scotland would end, and a true succession be assured. Speak not of it, lad, Mr. Cartwright replied. It is but cozening of the Lord to dally thus with Antichrist. England must have no part with the accursed thing, Rome and Reformation, there are these two, and no other, and we must choose between them. Pray, lad, and watch and toil by night and day, by thought and deed, 
that the choice may be the right. Above all, pray as I have ever bid you, that we may see the Queen speedily matched to some godly Protestant Lord, so that being blessed with issue, she may keep the succession clear from all fear of Romish taint. Wrestle, lad, with the Lord for that. It is the only hope and safeguard of reformation in England. He uttered no more than we all thought then, from the wisest and most wide-seeing to the most ignorant and bigoted. He, I think, saw it more plainly than many, and during the rest of the Queen's visit we spoke of little but these things, till I fully shared his thought that the tide of Rome, which had begun to flow again, and had already covered so many fair Protestant provinces, was setting hard towards England, and each morn and night my prayers went up with those of all our party, and many a one beside, that the Queen might soon be wed. So moved was I by all this talk, that I could take but little note of the disputations, plays, and pageants with which my university entertained the Queen, the more so as Mr. Cartwright took no more part in them. Still, I saw her every day, and dreamed of her every night, feeling I loved her more and more for the dangers that surrounded her, and that I would spare not even my life to ward her from her enemies. On the 10th of August, after a morning shower of degrees upon all the court, the Queen left Cambridge, and I not long afterwards, being troubled with an ague, went home to Longdean. End of chapter 5 Recording by Shreya Sethi